0: I think when it comes to healing-centered practices or any kind of trauma processing practice, one of the powerful things that we can deploy is you know all the work around polyvagal theory and understanding you know, the nervous system and interpersonal neurobiology is if 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 folks are prepared to to create the container in their body to hold more, then it, it's slightly easier to cope with the spiritual bypassing, right? Because you're expected, you're expected to enter some kind of conversation and experience that will bring up difficult material, whether it be in the individual level or the collective level. So what you want to do is create a lot of time in the beginning of an experience or in the beginning of a conversation just to regulate and and, and get grounded. And that could be in the form of a couple meditations, a movement meditation, sometimes a relational meditation of just checking in in terms of what's coming up. or or what's been coming up for you. And it can be even not even related to the subject matter that you're exploring, just having people kind of really land in the space, in the community.
1: Welcome to the Sounds of Sand podcast. My name is Michael Riley. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Angel Acosta. And Angel works to bridge the fields of leadership, social justice, and mindfulness. He completed his EDD in the curriculum and teaching department at Teachers College, Columbia University. His research explored healing-centric education as a promising framework for educational leadership, development, and community care. And Angel is the director of the Wounded Healers Portrait Series project. And this is a project that captures the profiles of nine educators, community leaders, and practitioners, all of whom have dedicated their lives in some shape or form to creating a space for others to thrive, flourish, and heal. We discuss this project and a lot more on the sounds of sand presented by Science and Non-Duality.
2: Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is Non-Duality? The universal forces. It's the collective consciousness. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy, energy is matter. That's what EMC Squared is about.
1: There's a language without nouns, there is a language without subjugation, there's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Yeah. All right, I'm here with Angel Acosta. Thank you, Angel, for being on the show.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: So, before we get into talking about uh, the Wounded Healers Project, um, I was wondering if you could give us a bit of your background and how you came to the work that you do
0: today. Yes, uh, I'm a healing-centered educator and a contemplative social scientist. So, I've had about 15 years in the field of education. Um, as an opportunity to to explore just the the implications of being an educator and a, a researcher and a person who cares in this current historical moment um, I currently am the director of the garrison Institute fellowship program um, it's an incredible incredible a fellowship and the garrison Institute please visit it is a former Franciscan monastery that was retrofitted to be a a retreat center. I also run the Acosta Institute, which is kind of a a research and learning hub uh, exploring innovation at the intersection of uh, healing-centered education, contemplative social science, and uh, slow work. So I'm fascinated with trying to hold space and create opportunities for the community to process not just trauma, but also create conditions for thriving. Um, yeah, that's the goal.
1: And what were some of your practices that sort of allowed you to weave this idea of education and healing together, like uh, um, some practices that you do like meditation things like that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think what occurred for me was, about a decade ago, I started to get into the healing arts, you know, meditation, yoga. You could throw some some capoeira in there as well. Um, You know, practices deployed by, you know, different communities to find balance, um, get grounded. I was studying anthropology at the time and I was really fascinated with how different communities Uh, secular and spiritual communities had all kinds of practices from contemplative prayer to walking meditation, all kinds of, you know, rituals and ceremonies and practices that enabled them to deal with just the chaotic nature of life and suffering. And I just gradually started to learn how to meditate, you know, gradually started to pick up, uh, you know, a yogic and a yoga practice. Um, and I was really struck by how they impacted me physically. Yeah. At the same time, I was doing a lot of work at the graduate level in regards to social justice. So really learning about the systems that reinforce inequality, especially in the United States, uh, but also globally. So thinking about things like racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, ableism, you know, different structural forces that leave certain people out and, and distribute uh, privilege in particular ways. So that So really thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is really popular now. So I was doing that almost a decade ago at the graduate level at a research center and I was really moved by, by that work. Um, I, I later dedicated you know, several years to working, um, helping low-income students uh, get access to higher education. Uh, so I took that anthropology background and that diversity, equity, and inclusion background and immersed myself in creating opportunities for the next generation. But even though I was slowly... Learning how to meditate and slowly trying to, uh, in Bikram Yoga hot studios, (laughs) stretch my limbs under those, uh, you know, hellish conditions. Um, I I noticed that in in the work itself, there was a serious gap uh, in the mindfulness space. Uh, And in the yoga world, folks were having a great time, you know, finding balance, calm, ease through these ancient practices, uh, escaping uh, suffering or at least trying to um, via these powerful modalities. At the same time, I saw social justice activists uh, and, and, and educators trying to change the various systems that folks in the mindfulness community were trying to escape. So I just I just I found that fascinating. That in the just social justice space, there were all these people burning out and and putting their life on the line to change the very systems that generated the suffering. That folks in the mindfulness and the yoga world were trying to stretch it out. <laughs> we're trying to meditate through. Right. And I, I saw a gap there. And I wasn't I wasn't the only scholar and person to begin to ask that question. Um, so, I, I decided to get more education and pursue a doctoral degree. So, I, I went to Columbia Teachers College uh, in, a, in the curriculum and teaching department and got a doctorate in, 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 in curriculum and teaching. And my question when I started was what are the connections, uh, missed connections between mindfulness based education? and social justice education. I really wanted to think about that in a really broad way. And I I started uh, that uh, academic, uh, rigorously academic experience with that question and it it evolved because what I noticed is that in both of those camps, what was common was trauma Mm -hmm. as a fundamental experience. Uh, so I became really moved by this question around what are healing centered pedagogies? What are practices, tactics, strategies, theories, modalities, ceremonies that could be deployed in a classroom? that could be used in an educational experience with adults or within an organizational training program that would, go, would move beyond trauma, yet would integrate both a real sense of critique and intention to transform the, the social structures that reinforce inequality in the case of social justice, Yet also take into account the well-being and the, the 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 thriving of the individuals in that experience by way of integrating mindfulness and other practices. So I felt really moved by that question and 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 and, and I, I decided to shift my inquiry a little bit, or at least refine it. And um, that's the story of healing centered education in terms of how I approach Mm -hmm. that work. Beautiful.
1: Yeah. You use this word escape. And I think this is a common theme in when we talk about, uh, you know, Western mindfulness, this idea of spiritual bypassing of Mm -hmm. not facing the, whether it's individual traumas or collective traumas or, societal injustices not facing them head on but using these practices sometimes to just kind of hit the eject button and just say okay I need to get out of this so how do you work with that balance between allowing people that space to escape when they need to when they need you know they're in a, a you know in a, a difficult life experiences in either in the present or in, in their past through intergenerational trauma um, but allowing them to kind of go into the fire and and witness and and be with the the traumas that we all share.
0: You know, I think, I think the thing about spiritual bypassing oftentimes is that it can all, it can happen unannounced. Um, you know, so, you know, folks have difficult experiences in their lives and, and when it surfaces, when they're triggered, when it emerges, activated by some kind of conversation some kind of experience and then there's the bypass right there's the avoidance Mm -hmm. i think when it comes to healing centered practices or any kind of trauma processing practice one of the powerful things that we can deploy is you know all the work around polyvagal theory and understanding the nervous system and interpersonal neurobiology is if, if if folks are prepared are prepared to to create the container in their body to hold more. Then it, it's slightly easier to cope with the spiritual bypassing, right? Because you're expected you, you're expected to enter some kind of conversation and experience that will bring up difficult material, whether it be in the individual level or the collective level. So what you want to do is create a lot of time. Uh, in the beginning of an experience or in the beginning of a conversation, just to regulate and, and, and get grounded, and that could be in the form of a couple of meditations, a movement meditation, sometimes a relational meditation of a, just checking in in terms of what's coming up mm-hmm. or, or, or what's been coming up for you, and it could be even not even related to the subject matter that you're exploring. Just having people kind of really land in the space in the community, and so so what that grounding does, that kind of relational and emotional grounding. It, it builds trust it, it generates a little bit more of a sense of ease and it allows you to manage, manage expectations um, in terms of how you frame the kind of experience you're trying to provide and in particular if you can prepare the community or the person um n- not just in the container of their body but also inviting them to be gentle with themselves as they're exploring, you know, uh, the conversation, like, like, for example, with, with what happened in the United States after George Floyd's murder, a lot of, well, you know, white Americans, um, were struck with just the realities of the state of affairs. And it, it generated a lot of, uh, interest in doing self-work. You know, books like White Fragility, books like all kinds of texts uh, really reflected the zeitgeist of this interest and this desire to explore white privilege in a way that hadn't been explored before. Mm -hmm. Now, those conversations are wonderful and great, um, but you want to prepare folks to deal with that white fragility, to deal with the white guilt, to deal with the this orienting feeling that comes when you become more and more aware of the kinds of um, socially um, beneficial ways in which a system is structured to enable certain access. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that can be a lot, you know, it's it, so you, you have this, arrival, this revelation, this overwhelming shock uh, in terms of just, just how safe it is to be in a white encased body. At the same time, that really is jarring in relation to the kinds of myths and narratives that for decades, one grows up listening that we live in a meritocratic society, mm-hmm. that it's based on equal opportunity, that it's based on, you know, laws that are there to reinforce that that society based on merit. So that's a lot, right? That's a lot to process. It's mm-hmm. a lot of process. So it's so, so, so creating healing centered spaces it creates the conditions for people to be able to do that work um, in a more robust way. Because you could argue that, you know, in, in that context of, of, of race, the spiritual bypassing happens all the time, you know, because it's just too hard mm-hmm. to hold the reality. Mm-hmm. And then also the mythic narrative um, An historical force that creates the the condition for us to not even take it seriously, see it, be aware of it on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot in there. Um, what? So, one thing that's coming up for me is, yeah, when you talked about the realization that many white people had after George Floyd, a little before, I think you know some of the other police brutality videos mm-hmm. that were happening. I remember a, a, a personal incident. I, I think it was around 2015 or so. It was one of these um, police brutality videos came out, and I said to a friend of mine, a black woman, you know, I was like, "Oh, this is you know, now the world is finally seeing, you know, the brutality that, that that's happening," and she said, "No, you mean now white people are seeing it mm-hmm. for the first time, mm-hmm. you know?" So, and that was a that was a shift for me, and I think for a lot of people that when we talk. About, about whiteness and the, the, you know, the white experience, often we're, we're saying the default experience, what we assume mm-hmm. is the default experience.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when, when something like mindfulness of the body, let's say, which is a, you know, a very common practice in meditation, it resonates differently, right? When you're, mm-hmm. when you're in, in a white body or in a black body, when you, when you said you're in a, a safe container body by default in the society where you don't have to worry about racial profiling and police brutality at the level of somebody in a brown or black body.
0: Yeah. And it's nuanced as well. You know, everyone suffers, you know, every, everybody suffers. So I think part of what, for me, the, the healing centered turn, the healing centered paradigm, which the way I define it is an extension and almost like a a constellation of all the different modalities and theoretical frameworks that are trying to create a sense of balance. Mm -hmm. Right? So I include trauma studies there. I include interpersonal neurobiology there. I include mindfulness there. I include social emotional learning there. I include restorative justice there. Um, but what they, what, what all of this together, what it does, it allows us to um, have more um, gentle orientations towards ourselves. With the work, um, allows us to go a little deeper with others, and also capture nuance, right? Because that's important, you know. Because so oftentimes when you're having this conversation, in regards to dynamic the dynamics that I named in terms of race, for example, there's another conversation that gets opened up sometimes subconsciously around, oh, so our bodies don't suffer or, you know, sure we have privilege, but we suffer too, you know, we're suffering too, isn't that considered? And no, it's really just a matter of kind of being able to like slow down enough to account for all all the dynamics that are at play. And, and then inviting us all to be more human, you know, in this case, race. Um, but there are so many other things that are happening, you know, from climate change to gender. So we, we need more capacities to unfortunately hold more, <laughs> hold more you know, at the same time. How do we hold it with grace?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I, mean- the, this this embracing of nuance the embracing of of being able to hold more than one thing at a time and even paradox paradoxes is, is part of the spiritual journey I think and that's mm-hmm. part of the spaciousness that I think you talked about that opens up in our in our worldview that we can say oh, okay this is true you know th- this is true and this is true at the same time and I, I'm, I'm creating the the conditions to hold the, both of those things um, as as valid yeah. So could you talk a bit about the genesis of the Wounded Healers Project?
0: Yeah. So the, the genesis of the Wounded Healers uh, Project came out of my dissertation where I was exploring healing-centered education and I learned a lot about um, just the ways in which different scholars, different communities for almost 150 years were responding to um and enduring systems of imperial colonial and capitalist domination. So what does it mean to be an indigenous person in the context of the U.S. and survive reservations, boarding schools and every single tactic deployed to save the soul and extract the Indian? So, you know, you have to understand that imagine, imagine your language banned, the tender spiritual technologies that your ancestors deployed for millennia, you know, not allowed, outlawed. You may be sent to a boarding school your hair cut, your language suppressed, and then sent back to your home to be, you know, almost an evangelical um, promoter of Western culture. You know, think about the psychological uh, strength that required to endure that and yet to preserve. A semblance of connection to your people, to your culture, and in my research, part of what I found that some of the most powerful evidence of healing-centered pedagogies can be found in the response to colonial and imperial rule within indigenous communities globally. Right? What was that response like? How was how was that how was how was imperfectly right so you can kind of preserve a sense of dignity in the face of domination and lose some of the language but but still the fact that they're still here mm-hmm. the plan was only their survival up until it could sustain the system as a unit of labor and the same goes for uh, the black diaspora and African Americans that it, it took some serious spiritual fortitude to navigate the transatlantic slave trade, to navigate Jim Crow laws, to navigate a global, a global systematic attempt to extract labor. Um, and in that extraction, you know, the lives upon lives that were lost um, and the minds. That were bent and the souls that were turned, you know, and not in not so positive ways. So, so in that work around learning more about you know healing-centered practices and, and how they how they evolved and how they got systematized and, and became new ways of talking about restoring our well-being, like mindfulness, like social emotional learning, like somatic. Practices, somatic intelligence, emotional intelligence, social intel- intelligence, These are these are new forms of talking about having a sense of well-being and awareness, and those are those are healing-centered practices. So as I as I as I as I sat with all this, I came across the concept of wounded healer, which was which originally used within Greek mythology. Uh, the Greek in, in Greek mythology, you have this character named Chiron, who's a who's a god, but he's also really deeply committed to 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 really serving and being a servant. Um, and in, in 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 Greek mythology, he's oftentimes associated with physicians and how the physician cares for the patient. But it's very important that the the, the intelligence of the physician in terms of dealing with their own wounds supports in the therapeutic relationship to the patient, right? So it's like this capacity to understand one's own wounds that enables you to be a more efficient, effective healer. Chiron himself Mm -hmm. dedicated his time Mm -hmm. to to restoring, reparation, um, and restoration, so and so I found that interesting. and I found a couple of papers on wounded healer pedagogy, wounded healer teaching. And but, I, but there was a very gross undertreatment of the concept, you know. And and in terms of education. And then you saw it very you used uh, somewhat popularly as an archetype within Carl Jung's work. Mm-hmm. Carl Jung's uh, really comprehensive psychological framework. And frameworks, and, and and Carl, um, my boy Carl, <laughs> he he used it in a similar way of 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 naming an archetype of a person who was was so deeply moved, transformed by their own wounds that it allowed them to be a, a unique kind of um, ally to those who had similar wounds. So I was struck by that, and um, I, I noted it in my dissertation, in my doctoral research, and um, I just said to myself that at some point I want to do something with that concept. It's, it, it, sounds, it sounds like a sexy concept to play with, um, just not during my dissertation defense. You know, I, I noted it, but it wasn't an, it wasn't an, a, a, a central theme. So after I graduated, and I was you know, facilitating experiences and, and consulting, I said, you know, let me turn back. And it hit me really, really, really hit me really hard. We should do something with the Healers, but it has to be not so academic. It has to be more arts-based, more creative. Mm-hmm. And at the time during the pandemic, the field of education in the United States was experiencing the the most challenging time. Imagine all these teachers teaching online, all of a sudden at the drop of a dime. And imagine all these students home, you know, experiencing what they usually can uh, escape when they're in school now at home with parents who are stressed or maybe parents who are working and are essential workers and are not home and the lack of supervision while you're experiencing online education and need all kinds of resources. So the system of of education experienced a lot of trauma and stress and the byproduct of of it one of the many was that more and more teachers began to question whether they should be teaching. Burnout was at an all time high. Right now we have the highest levels of turnover in the the system. So many teachers are leaving. And I was interested in the people who were staying. I was interested in what does it mean to navigate a pandemic um, and have your intestinal fortitude, you know, tested, um, and yet commit to stay, and yet maybe even deploy healing-centered teaching practices to get through it and to inspire your students. So we decided to look at our network to see who were some healing-centered educators, some healing-centered leaders who were doing really powerful work, and uh, I, I tapped about nine people who I knew were doing really creative, really creative work. And then I approached uh, a photographer, Raj Walker, from Paper Monday, who him and his wife, B, have a studio called Paper Monday. And they do beautiful portraitures. So I decided we would do a he- Wounded Healers, a healing-centered Portrait series and podcast. So we we took each subject and took beautiful portraits, um, and then interviewed them, and then produced a podcast. And uh, we built a site for it, so you can see the portraits, you can hear these incredible stories of resilience and transformation. And then a couple years later, we got uh, we were fortunate enough to get. Funding from the Kellogg Foundation, which we leveraged and we actually framed each portrait in gold trimmed framing. And have now begin to um, basically administer a traveling exhibition mm-hmm. of the portrait series. So we have the portraits physically. And uh, my vision is that at some point, some of these will end up in the Smithsonian Museum. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it out loud right now. And there's also a um, 3D exhibition right now. You can you can walk through the gallery, a three dimensional gallery at uh, TC Macy Gallery. Uh, Teachers College, Columbia University has a Macy Gallery, and they we had an in person gallery exhibition that was rendered into a 3D exhibition, and um, we're just really excited to to promote and talk about this this healing centered community project that, that's national in scope, um, but but really is a source of inspiration.
1: All right, let's hear a few samples from the Wounded Healers portrait series. You'll hear the voices of Angela Kariotis and Dolores Acosta.
2: If you're able to create a story then you're able to have forward movement on something. I think story is galvanizing and that's healing because it's release, but it's also joy. Like, isn't that fun? Like, doesn't that sound fun? You know, fun and joy doesn't make something less. Like you're having fun or you're laughing. It doesn't mean we're being light. It doesn't mean we're not being serious. So I think that there is a, a healing in the process of creativity too, of how liberating it is and experimenting. Like, isn't it a great release? Isn't it healing to not worry about perfection or uh, not having to be right or inviting failure and mourning loss, if that's what's happening, like mourning the failure and giving yourself permission for that?
0: You weren't born to work. I don't think. (laughs) to
2: work. Like, I know I have to because, you know, capitalism, white supremacy and all that. But I know I wasn't born to just deliver and work. I know I was born to
0: live. I was born to love. I was born to bring peace. I was born to bring joy into the world. And we've seen that with little babies. We just lose that because of society and all the structures that are in place to hold us back. And it's just a matter of breaking that down. Once you break that down, you can see like, oh snap, there's more out there.
1: Was it about the voice that 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 called to you to create this as a podcast? Because for me, uh, listening to it, I love I love the voice because there is something very vulnerable about hearing someone's first person account of what they went through and what brought them, you know, what drew them to teaching, uh, and and yeah, discussing openly their own their own wounds. Which, in my uh, experience at school, and I think this is pretty common, teachers did not express vulnerability. You know, they were, they, they had to be these kind of firewalls against the personal to kind of, you know, shape <laughs> the students into, into, you know, what, what the outcome,
0: uh, the, the curriculum. In terms of the use of voice and, mm-hmm. and the podcast as a vehicle for promoting and, and treating the podcasts and the public, I think what what's important to note is that in the midst of the pandemic with the social distancing policies that were deployed to cope with the virus, as many of us were apart physically, many of us were closer than ever before virtually. All right, so I think there was something about the human voice. There was something about people's voices that generated a certain level of intimacy. In the context of a global pandemic, that was keeping us apart. So I felt really strongly that it was important to hear the voices of each person and to, and to, and to get lost in those voices and, and feel the intimacy of their stories. And at the same time, because the history of education in the United States, especially in relation to teachers has always been fraught a great book uh, to explore this if you're curious is called it's titled Teacher Wars. Yeah. You know, it's the, the classic struggle, not just you know, with teacher unions, but the classic struggle of a of a profession that since its inception was feminized in the sense that since women in our society are still are still uh, belittled, degraded, oppressed The teaching profession has suffered from that, you know, almost second class status and 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 also um, grossly underappreciated, grossly underpaid, um, especially in public education. Mm -hmm. So I, I found it provocative to, on the one hand, listen to and curate these stories in audio form. But actually also create a uh, uh, an experience for each subject that that would allow them to really feel into their sense of dignity. And based on our research around the project, a quote from one of them: I felt like royalty. Mm-hmm. You know, to be to be brought to the studio with these world-class photographers and be and and, be, and be, you know just like treated as a work of art mm-hmm. there was something there as well so this this portrait series is is is, is, is it's not just for the audience and, and and those who will receive these voices and these images but it, but it was for the actual subjects themselves and the people themselves as well hmm. and we were very sensitive to at every step of this process that this was a healing a healing centered container from inception to execution you know so often with any kind of project you know the execution is so stressful you know it's like the production is so stressful Um, uh, the output, you know, oftentimes very beautiful, but we wanted to make sure that we, we really curated an experience that allowed the wounded healers to, to feel a sense of being held, being seen and celebrated. And I think, I think the project, you can feel that in the project. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh.
1: It's a beautiful beautiful thing to listen to and to to view and I think this inter- it's it's interesting to think about the teacher in the context of wounded healer because I think for many f- people um, the the school experience itself is retriggering of trauma or creating new traumas for them so you know I've never really heard education, framed in this way as as education as a healing experience for Mm -hmm. students and for the for the teachers too for for the wounded healers
0: themselves yeah and that's part of the 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 benefit of the healing centered turn in education the healing centered paradigm which is part of the scholarship that i supported to promote Uh, you know when you talk about things like restorative justice for example you know, used in schools, that's a healing methodology, you know, let's say, you know, the students that end up fighting in the classroom or in the hallways, the typical response has always been to suspend both or all involved mm-hmm. and restorative justice. What it did was it, it stopped that. And it brought everybody together through, through different circle work to figure out, okay, what happened here? You know, what, what what are the what's who what what are the reparative and restorative things that need to be happening? What is the truth? Um, what do people need on both ends, victim and you know quote unquote perpetrator? So that's the pretty that's pretty powerful stuff, especially when you think about the statistics around suspensions. You know, and, and, and who gets suspended most and what happened to those students who do get suspended, you know, they end up, a lot of them end up in more trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sometimes the classic scooter prison pipeline mm-hmm. was a byproduct of the ways in which schools were dealing with discipline, you know, just kind of suspending students. So then our students are suspended or ejected, you know, basically in a sense, exiled. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what capture, what catches those students? oftentimes the streets, other vulnerable people, other vulnerable adults, uh, and you create a vicious cycle. So healing-centered, healing and healing-centered practice and education, deeply influenced by restorative justice, and then, and then you see it over the last 30 years, this like integration of mindfulness in the classroom,
1: mm-hmm.
0: of emotional learning in the classroom. And then also there's a parallel movement of integrating mindfulness in the workforce, integrating mindfulness and social and emotional learning in the workforce. So it's a provocative thing to hold that all these different modalities being integrated both in K through twelve education and in professional learning context, right when we're experiencing the most what some call what some people call poly crises, mm. climate change, economic uncertainty, socioeconomic inequality, racial inequality, um, political polarization, right? So it's 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 an interesting time to be able to hold, as you said earlier, paradox that there we we have all kinds of pedagogical resources to develop more robust ways to deal with differences, with um, oppression and oppressive social structures. At the same time, we suffer from the legacy of unequal. Um, systems as well. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful moment to be a wounded healer, I think.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's much, much needed. It feels like it's going to the root of, of what potential change can be, which is students, you know, which is education. You know, often we, we, like you said, the education system is often underfunded and it's seen as like a second class job and you know like you said with the the sexism involved in, in feminizing the the uh, the work but uh, i think everyone knows folks that have children like just how how important quality education and and for the students to have a, a safe and nurturing environment uh, in in the school is
0: mhm 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 mm-hmm. yeah
1: How's this project been received? Do you have any sort of stories or anything uh, from the field of of
0: oh, yeah. student? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's as far as the reception. It's been really focused on adults and teachers and practitioners, mm-hmm. and I think people have felt that it's striking a, a, a nerve in the sense that it's allowing them to find language that they've been hungering for. And it's been a gateway for people to talk about the pent up frustration of navigating the global pandemic and not having had the containers or the spaces to talk about the tensions, stresses, and traumas that they endured during that. And hearing these stories allows them to to think through their own experience it allows them to reflect on their own Wounded Healer journey. So overall, I, th- I think it's been well-received, you know, and and we're, we're just getting really started in terms of uh, reaching uh, critical mass. You know, we're just kind of in year one of, of putting the work out there, and we've already hosted uh, a digital summit. We've hosted... Um, two really powerful in-person experiences. One was a a contemplative uh, workshop on wounded healing at Columbia University. Um, And then we also hosted a week-long exhibition with the portraits up at T.C. Macy Gallery. And And then the site is up for the world to see and people are invited to engage it. Um, and we're also in the process of publishing a, a book on the first round of portraits, which should be out in 2024. Um, so, so really excited. Uh, so we're looking at, the, at it from a three-year kind of um, perspective. So we hope, we hope this interview is just an invitation for folks to hear how the project is uh, in its kind of genesis um and uh people will meet new wounded healers each year and just really excited um to move this along and really grateful for the kellogg foundation for their support
1: for sure yeah no i I hope uh you know i think a lot of people in the sand community will really resonate with this project because it it does tie in a lot of interest that science and non-duality has been focused on especially in the last few years of of uh trauma you know at the wisdom of trauma film but also just our kind of yeah just a a, a more a more compassionate space at looking at what does non-duality mean what does true oneness actually feel like um in a in a direct in a direct way and i think this project really exemplifies that
0: um Mm -hmm.
1: and and the things actually you earlier you were speaking about uh, the indigenous experience and the the, um the, the practices of of cutting off people's hair and forcing them not to, to speak the language anymore that's much of the next the new film that science and non-duality is working on that should be out in the next year or so focuses on that on the resilience of those communities and what you know there's the, just how in- inspirational it is to think about um yeah a genocide happening but still surviving through that and still carrying on the cultural legacies that were not only wiped out by people, but by systems, and I think that's something that I would say white people don't quite get all the time is that what that what that feels like when not just people are against you, but a system is against you. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like we've all experienced that thing where you're like trying to renew your driver's license or something, and you get stuck in like a, a loop of you know people passing you from one person to the other, and you're like, oh man, the system's so screwed up. I hate this thing. Mm-hmm but to, you know when you have entire governmental systems with armies behind them against you it's it's quite quite something to to persevere and have the resilience to get through that
0: yeah you know and part of also an insight that i think it's important for listeners to sit with is that sure for example i'm in this body um perceived you know, as a presenting uh, cisgendered male man of color. And as I navigate and I've navigated this space in this body in society, I've experienced all kinds of benefits and, and, and also derailments. Um, but what's important to note is that for many uh, people of color right now, we're entering kind of a renaissance powerful renaissance so historically you've had these systems that have been deployed against us but it's firmly clear that we are not just worthy that we have a sense of dignity i don't have time to even carry that kind of legacy um so it's, a, so, it's a, so it's an interesting moment for many of us who've arrived at certain maybe spiritual or emotional maturity that feels as if like we're being held by ancestors in this moment. Mm-hmm. There's a palpable feeling like that in a lot of people. I feel it in my bones. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's 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 different because I used to have that heaviness all the time, navigating all these different predominantly white spaces, and having to perform, I don't do that anymore. Mm. It's not my work. And that's that's the power of working on things like a Wounded Healer project, is because it constantly reminds me of uh, my own woundedness, but also my own commitment to healing. And uh, that's kind of where I am now. It's just somewhat unfazed. beautiful
1: it's very inspiring thank you for sharing that thank yeah. you yeah all right so um, the smithsonian that's coming up you mentioned that <laughs> <laughs> it's,
0: coming. it's coming it's coming don't <laughs> tell them though you know we got to you know we got to <laughs> they might coming.
1: they <laughs> might be listening so you don't don't think it's spam if you see a smithsonian email come in your inbox i uh, know <laughs> cool um, any other anything else coming up in this fall that you want to connect with
0: People. yeah, I mean, we'll be hosting a lot of events at the Garrison Institute. Um, we'll ho- we'll be hosting a, a a retreat exploring contemplative leadership um, at the end of September. Um, we'll be hosting uh, a, a online international healing centered education conference um, in early October uh, in November, We'll host uh, another retreat at the Garrison Institute um, with Dr. Yolanda Cili Ruiz, one of our Wounded Healers, exploring her methodology, the archaeology of self, and uh, we'll close out the year teaching an online course, um, the Healing Centered Primer, which is a healing-centered education one-on-one course that any, anybody can take. It's a three-week experience, thinking, exploring, theory, practice and research in the context of healing centered education. And lastly, next year in February, we'll be launching the first, uh, healing centered education certification program through the ACASA Institute. So look out for all of that. A lot of good work coming up.
1: That's exciting. Yeah, Yeah. Nice. We'll have links to all that in the show notes and, uh, Yeah. Thank you, Angel, for being on the show. And I hope we continue this relationship with science and non-duality and and all the work you're doing.
0: Of course, of course. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be in touch. And thank you for listening to
1: The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation... Please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of sand content available exclusively to SAN members and we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple podcasts Google and Spotify and share this episode with your family friends and all sentient beings be well.